This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The murder of George Floyd has ignited a global outcry against racism and police violence. As a white American living in London, I found myself taking refuge in the poetry of Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Hughes wrote those words in 1935. 85 years later, the American dream continues to be but a lie for so many of its people. How can we make sense of this history? How can we understand the meaning of George Floyd? while not forgetting the Sean Bells, the Oscar Grants, the Kelly Thomas, the Eric Gardners, the Michael Browns, the Laquan McDonalds, the Antoine Rose II's, and the Ahmaud Arbery's, to name just a few Americans murdered for the color of their skin. There's no evidence that dictates that black men are a threat to the police in the United States. You cannot point to any type of data that would reveal that black men are a threat to the police. So why are white officers, white officers in particular, killing black men? It makes no sense. So that's why we're standing up every way we can and in peaceful ways just to kind of change some of these policies, these racist, systemic policies that have been around for almost 100 years. To help process the protests and the riots and the racism and the police violence, I've invited back on the show my friend, T.O. Hardiman. Tio Hardiman is president and founder of Violence Interrupters Incorporated and an adjunct professor of criminal justice. Tio Hardiman, welcome back to Fresh Ed. It's an honor to be back uh, with you here today. When did you learn about the death of George Floyd? Well, I learned about the death of George Floyd, uh, basically, I think about a couple of hours right after his death had occurred. Um, it like sent a shockwave here uh, through Chicago because... The uh, the actual video was released. The young lady that filmed the video, it, it was all over social media. I mean, like almost immediately. And um, it was like it took the breath out of me, basically. And and so what has happened in Chicago since the release of that video, since people started realizing what, what happened in Minnesota? Well, first and foremost, I'll say that uh, when people uh, watched the video, it took eight minutes and 46 seconds to zap the life out of uh, George Floyd and in Chicago, the city kind of went up. And what I mean by the city went up like in smoke, so to speak. And because a lot of people all over the city in Chicago uh, act like they were like basically going crazy for a minute because nobody could understand uh, what happened to George Floyd and why it happened to him. A lot of people were pissed off because you would think that somebody would have maybe at least thought about pushing the guy, pushing the officer off of uh, George Floyd because he had laid there calling for his mother, telling everybody he could not breathe, and nobody would advocate violence against no police officers. That's not what we're talking about. But for one second in time, somebody should have at least attempted to get, to uh, draw the attention away from, um, you know, everything else and try to push that officer off of George Floyd's neck. And George Floyd would probably be alive today. So that's a lot of the conversation that was being, uh, you know, a lot of people were talking about it like that. And I'll be honest with everybody that's listening to your podcast here. If I were present there, 
I would have helped George Floyd breathe. I could not sit back. It would have been my natural inclination as a man uh, to help that brother breathe. It was not right. Maybe it would have been problematic. You know, like I said, I'm not advocating violence, but just a, 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 a mere measure of uh, pushing that officer off the man's neck. I think that would suffice. I might have got, they may have, uh, you know, hit me in the back of my head or something. I might have got arrested. But the thing about it is that, come on, man, it's about saving a life. I believe it would have dropped everything on any individual that would have at least tried to help the young man. I guess this brings up a really interesting question. And the reason that I actually wanted to invite you on the show today is about this issue of violence and about, you know, when is an act of violence justified, if ever? You know, so you're saying that you would have somehow gotten that that police officer off of the neck of George Floyd, even if that would have resulted in violence to yourself, if that would have meant violence from you onto the police officer. So how, you know, in this very supercharged political racial moment in America, and and I must say that the, these issues have, have spread around the world. Uh, just today, I've so people in London were doing um, a minute silence for George Floyd. Yeah. So, you know, how how can we think about violence for someone that has has thought about violence um, and has seen violence on so many levels uh, inside communities ha- has tried to be a uh, resolve conflict um, in very sort of um, intense ways. Let's say, as we talked about in our last podcast, how do you make sense of some of the issues of violence that we see today? In, in the protests and just generally when it comes to race in America? Well, you have to understand also, see, if, if George Floyd was a white person or uh, Asian, Hispanic, or whatever the case may be, I believe that any uh, grown man that believes in humanity would have uh, pushed the officer off of that person's neck. So it's not so much about the race, even though it just happens to be a preponderance of evidence that African-American men are the ones that are killed by uh, predominantly white police officers here in the United States. That's what makes it so bad with the systemic racism and the systemic uh, le- uh, disrespect for a black person's humanity. So when you talk about the riots, the looting, and the demonstrations, you have three sets of people out there. You have uh, peaceful demonstrators that are doing the best they can do just to raise their voices, which is always a good thing. You have some uh, people in the crowd that want to, the second layers of people that want to become famous of somebody else's tragedy, you know, just to hang on that will take the opportunity to, you know, uh, you know, participate in interviews like they really organized something, but they never did. They just joined in to something that was already organized, sort of, sort of speak. Then you have that, uh, the third layer are the looters and the, and the people that riot in certain ways. Um, I must say that in Minneapolis, you know, the police station was burned down immediately. That's the first time in the history something like that happened. Uh, that, that goes to show you there that there there is really a um uh you know like there's a, a, a the people are they're fed up people are fed up but I'll say this much it appears that outside agitators are behind some of the um, incidents that are taking place because I know my people I'm African American man I know my people quite well and basically all these fires that are kind of like uh, pre orchestrated fires that's something different for um. My community, I'm not saying our people do not set fires, but we've had some intentionally uh, well-structured and organized people setting fires, and it seems a little different. So the outside agitators come in, and they make a lot, they cause a lot of mayhem and chaos. And, um, and let me just say this since we're on this subject matter. 
when Laquan McDonald was killed in Chicago, executed by the police, we organized many, many, I'm talking about thousands of people came out on a regular basis in Chicago, and we never once had any type of uh, uh, riots or looting. We took care of the business in a very peaceful but strong way, and as an end result, and an organized way, as an end result, there's been an 85% reduction in police-involved killings of young black men in Chicago because we stood unified. That's the difference, and Chicago should be the model for the entire world and the nation because a lot of laws were changed in Chicago uh, since we really uh, organized uh, during the Laquan McDonald uh, era. And so Laquan McDonald was killed by police in 2015. And so what you're saying is that th there were reforms that took place inside the police department. What what kind of reforms? What kind of reforms uh, happened in the years since? 2015 when Laquan McDonald was yeah. killed. Okay, good question. So what happened is that now there's a dissent decree in Chicago and in the state of Illinois where the officers, if you know the officers are involved in any misconduct, they shoot somebody, they're automatically, uh, they're taken off the streets for about 60 days and there's an internal investigation. All right? Now the officers, uh, their body cameras have to be on all the time. Whenever they go out and uh, dealing with the public, their body cameras must be on whenever they're dealing with a you know, like a situation, whenever they're dealing with anybody, they have to encounter people uh, breaking the law or whatever the case may be, their cameras, uh, body cameras must be on, all right? And so also, you know, basically there's been a lot of changes in uh, the police department structure when it comes down to promotions of African-American, uh, you know, police officers and, you know, uh, put it like this, and um, minorities, so to speak, minority police has uh, changed, the structure has changed, and there's a lot, of, there's a dissent decree, people can look it up if you listen here, you can look it up online, the Chicago dissent decree with the Chicago Police Department, and remember, it wasn't just because, see, because of all the organized protests in Chicago also, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, they came to Chicago and conducted what you might say a scathing evaluation and review of the Chicago Police Department, and they found out that Chicago was one of the most corrupt police departments in the United States. And see, what people need to understand, I'm not anti-police. I'm only anti-excessive force and police brutality. Right, right. And what's interesting is that in Minneapolis, the mayor has come out in the last few days and has basically said, we want to change the police system and structures, but we simply cannot do it. And in fact, in Minneapolis, they have a police chief who sued the state for racial discrimination in the police force. Yes. Uh, and now he's been promoted to being a police chief. Right. So it seems like there are some serious structural issues in place, even when a mayor and a police chief, and obviously the public, want to see change. Yes. Yeah, see what happened, I, I like what the mayor in Minneapolis has, has done so far. Uh, he spoke out against what happened to George Floyd and then now the other officers were arrested. And, and, and uh, you had people standing on the streets asking this guy and telling him the man cannot breathe. He's dying over there. And the man is dying. And it seems like it just fell on deaf ears. And basically, I'm some, it's just straight up unacceptable on every level in the world. You had a black man that was being killed uh, all across. You know, people was able to watch his death across, his slow death across America. So, yeah, the mayor of Minneapolis, uh, he stood up. But at the same time, the officer that really, uh, you know, pretty much gave uh, the death blow by having his knee uh, obstructing uh, the, the flow of the, the flow of air, the, the airflow to George Floyd's, uh, you know, brain and heart and all that stuff. 
basically he had a lot of complaints in his background. So I believe that the mayor of Minneapolis is going to do the right thing now moving forward to make sure that they check, see what needs to happen. I was pushing for two things. I was pushing for what you call a citizen's intervention law in which uh, citizens can intervene when they see a police crossing the line. I'm not saying advocating violence against the police. What I'm saying is that something needs to give, though. There needs to be, see, the legislators need to tweak that law to make it work, you know, so everybody would be okay. Maybe like four or five or ten citizens can hold the police or something until some higher level officials get there so they can stop them from killing somebody, like in the case of George Floyd. Another law that needs to be examined is a law, the resisting arrest law, because you can be locked up in, in Illinois and throughout the nation for resisting arrest, even if the arrest is unlawful. That, need, that law needs to be tweaked a little bit and looked at because a lot of African-American men in particular are being locked up and some of these arrests are unlawful. And last but not least, I said this on the news the other day here in Chicago, there's no evidence that dictates that black men are a threat to the police in the United States. You cannot point to any type of data that would reveal that black men are a threat to the police. So why are white officers, white officers in particular, killing black men? It makes no sense. So that's why we're standing up every way we can and in peaceful ways just to kind of change some of these policies, these racist, systemic policies that have been around for almost 100 years. So why do you think white officers are killing black men, to put it very bluntly? Right? Like what, what are some of these underlying racist structures that enable such an environment to exist? Well, you got to understand a blast from the past. Uh, Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seals, the original founders of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, they deal with this issue in the 60s. They dealt with this issue. They, those guys were the vanguard of the community. You had white officers coming in Oakland, California, beating black men up, killing them and everything. So the Black Panther Party organized, and they were just, they were like a watchdog a group of guys that would watch the police when they're arresting a black person or trying to harm a black person. So I, I just want to salute you. Huey P. Newton, he's passed away now, but Bobby Seals is still around. Now, this is the thing. The reason white officers are killing black men is for two reasons. One is that they've been able to get away with it for a long time. And if you look at the evolution of policing in black America, you have a lot of white officers. And like I say, I'm not, I have a lot of police officer friends. So my thing is, um, I understand both ends. Uh, I'm looking at both sides of the coin. The elephant in the room is that uh, 100 years ago, you know, the evolution of policing, you had some of the racist white people that ended up becoming police officers and becoming prosecutors and judges because they took the mask off their face for the, the, the hoods when they were racist with the Ku Klux Klan and all that kind of belief system, and they became police officers. So, you know, uh, it was business as usual for them. And then by the black community not being united like we should be, <clears throat> let me clear this up. If, if the black community was united as one, one community, one nation here in the United States, not against the United States, but as one people, then officers could not kill black men because they would know that there's some type of nation back in the black men. But what I like seeing now is that basically white people, Asian people, Hispanic people, black people are all unifying across the world now to make sure that uh, the death of George Floyd would not go down in vain. That's a good thing, but you're talking about 100 years of discrimination, racism, um, excessive force, police brutality, so a lot of police officers feel like it's just the norm. See, the black community is like an experimental laboratory for policing. 
all the police go and train <clears throat> in the black community from the drug trade all the way to everything else to the gang violence. So that's one of the reasons why. And uh, <clears throat> over the years, when a, whenever police was a killer African-American man, it was always the same story. The black man had a gun. He was running. and We had to shoot him and kill him. There was a shoot to kill type of uh, code of silence when he come down to the police killing uh, black men in particular. Do you think the George Floyd murder and the aftermath and the protests and the international outrage that has ensued, do you think this is actually going to be a tipping point or will things sadly go back to normal? Yeah, I believe that George Floyd's death would be a tipping point for sure, uh, short term, short term tipping point. But as time goes on, things might go back to normal to a degree here and there because once the smoke clears, everybody, you know, gets past whatever they're dealing with, whatever the feelings may be with uh, George Floyd. And I, I, I know for a fact that a lot of sweeping changes will come uh, to the world of law enforcement behind this. But that's not going to change the mindset of some of the officers out there that feel like black lives just don't matter. You know, some people, you got to understand the real psychology of George Floyd's death. You know, you got police officers out there yet. Three police officers kneeling on the guy, another officer, uh, you know, holding, you know, like holding the line, so to speak, standing on security, while a man, a human being was saying that they could not breathe. You had the Eric Gardner death. Everybody heard about what happened to Eric Gardner when he was put, placed in the chokehold in, in New York. And so those police officers had no regard so for life, period. So the reality is that, yeah, I think there will be some uh, immediate changes, but you're going to have some tough, Tony, tough. Tony type of, you know, policing policies, you know, coming for, forward. But at the same time, if you can't weed out these racist police officers that cross the line, it's going to be hard. It's going to be real hard because if you took all the illegal dope, all the drugs out the black community, what would be a need to continue to police in such, with such a heavy hand in the black community? Because, you know, we don't talk about the, the, the illegal dope trade, which is all a setup anyway for young black men across the nation. That's problematic. And then at the same time, let me just be clear and be blunt. The police cannot stop killings in the black community. And it's not like, put it like this, the police have not been trained to stop killings in the black community. Uh, there's a need, if you want to talk about serve and protect, we all have to kind of reinvent ourselves and, and revamp traditional policing because too many people are being killed in Chicago over the weekend of the riots, uh, 23 people killed in Chicago in one weekend, one weekend. Okay. And over 80 shot. So there's another problem that's brewing in the African American community, which is systemic as well. That's been around for almost at least 50 years. My people have been killing each other on a high level and we have to bring an end to it. People get mad when I talk about this because they say, well, white people kill each other, Hispanic people kill each other. I understand that, but I'm concerned about black people killing each other as well. You see, so the thing about it, all these issues have to be worked out in order to make the community, uh, uh, you know, become much better, so to speak, in order to make the community, like, work as a unit. All of these issues need to be addressed on a higher level. So this is all happening in the context of the coronavirus, which has absolutely decimated America and particularly American cities. Yep. How in Chicago, how has the coronavirus intersected with race and protest against 
you know, police brutality and violence? You know, what's the connection? How have you seen the connection with the coronavirus? Well, I'll tell you something. Everybody was pretty much abiding by the stay-at-home order to a degree, with, uh, with the exception of a few segments of people across Chicago, because people just want to get out there, get outside, and do whatever they do. But once George Floyd was uh, killed, uh, it, it appeared as if the coronavirus was just a second thought. People weren't even paying no attention to no coronavirus. I mean, we had thousands and thousands of people marching all across the United States everywhere. And we haven't heard a lot of cases, or a lot of new cases of coronavirus. So uh, that remains to be seen if there was an impact, a negative or adverse impact where people uh, came down with the coronavirus. But it appears that nobody thought about the coronavirus. I, I saw people with masks on their faces at the protest, but some, a lot of people didn't have any masks on their face. So the reality is uh, I think the coronavirus was not even a, a like I say, a second thought in regards to the way people mm -hmm. felt uh, after they heard about George Floyd's death. Yeah, it seemed like it was a second order problem. The first order problem was the murder of another black man. Yes, yes. And that's what, there you go, and that's what happened. So the, the difference between George Floyd's death and all the other deaths is that uh, even though Eric Gardner, they videotaped when he was uh, killed for placing a legal chokehold, and then you've got those officers actually got off. <laughs> you know, which is crazy. And then LaShawn, Laquan McDonald was executed. They had smoke coming out of his body. Officer Jason Van Dyke shot him up and killed that young man. So the difference between George Floyd is that you would think that the police actually received the message that it's time out. What's going on? I mean, why, how could this be happening again in today's world? I just think some individual police officers feel like they're above the law and they can do what they want to do. If you look at the way that Chavez, the, the officer... Um, I may mispronounce his name, Shaban or something like that, had his knee in the back of that man's neck and he had his hands in his pocket like, look, I don't care, man. You're going to die. Who gives a damn about you anyway? And I, I, I would like to uh, dare anybody to cross the line to take me off your neck. It's like, come on, man. It didn't make me see. Some people might try to weigh the pros and cons out saying he didn't know. Come on, you don't do that to a, look, George Floyd was a gentle giant. <clears throat> he walked peacefully with those officers when they put him in handcuffs. Handcuffs. He was not really a threat to them officers at all. For them to take that young man's life is one of the most bogus things that has happened in this in this century, actually. I'll just say the century so far. And it's just it's crazy because his death will be remembered, I'm talking about for, for ages and ages to come, I believe. And it's going to set forth a lot of sweeping changes. What do you think your organization, Violence Interrupters, could teach us, us being people who are upset at what we saw in Minneapolis, us being the protesters that have now, for, for a, over a week now, uh, have gone out every single day and evening to protest the death of George Floyd? What can we learn from an organization like yours that has tried to stop violence on the front end? Well, that's the key language right there, stopping violence on the front end. What people can learn, you know, I created the Violence Interruptors in 2004, and then it uh, also was uh, produced by Cartemplin Films as a documentary titled The Interrupters. And uh, it's all about stopping the killings on the front end. So uh, what people can learn, and even police can learn, because I've been advocating to train police uh, in the in the field of conflict resolution so we can all organize together to prevent uh, acts of violence. And then we can also train police to take a look instead of, for example, instead of citizens getting involved, 
maybe we can train police officers where they can get involved and stop one of their colleagues from taking the life of somebody, uh, especially when they cross that line. So that's important there. So with Bouncing the Ruptures, my whole life has been stopping it on the front end. So far this year in Chicago, my staff have mediated over 30 conflicts that could have turned deadly, and we saved somebody's life on the front end. And that's what people can learn because a lot of times, a lot of times people come after the fact. And I'm trying to get us in a, in a, in a mindset of not coming after the fact all the time, but preventing it from happening. Somebody knew that, that the officer that stood, that put his knee on George Floyd's neck was a, was a bad officer. Somebody knew that within the ranks, but they did not come forward and they didn't step up. The other officers have messed up their entire lives now. They will never be able to work again in law enforcement. I don't think so. And we know that uh, Officer Chauvin, Chauvin, whatever his name is, and, and maybe I don't need to pronounce his name all the way because I want to give him no real credit for any, anything other than his diabolical act to take George Floyd's life. But this is the thing. Somebody knew that this guy was a threat and a problem in the community at large, and nobody stepped up to the plate, not even a higher-level official. The same thing happened, even though they were not police. Uh, Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed by two guys in, in Georgia. And uh, the district attorney, state's attorney, whatever, she, didn't, she, she did not rush to charge those guys because she knew the guy. And now that guy has messed up his son's life and his life, and he's about to enter, I call it the twilight zone, because his entire life he was a working-class guy, and because of his deep-seated racism, he crossed the line and uh, had his son cross the line with him. And now they're going to be in prison the rest of their lives and it just doesn't make no sense. Now you got two generations of men that are just going to be wiped out of their families, whether they're white or black, they're wiped out. Ahmad Arbery, is, he's wiped out. George Floyd is wiped out. His daughter, his six, George Floyd's six-year-old daughter said yesterday on the news that her father changed the world. That's, that was a six-year-old's comment right there, okay? Yeah, it's pretty powerful. It seems like the, the Ahmad Arbery and the George Floyd Floyd cases are obviously similar, but they they seem to be different in a way yeah. of in terms of violence mediation, right. right? The violence mediation that would have to take place between Ahmad Arbery would be between basically two white men yeah. and their their hatred of a black man that was running nearby. And then the George Floyd case would be about violence mediation between a, a white police officer and black men. And so the, the I guess the question is, what would violence mediation look like to or, you know, against a police officer? Like how how can how can a violence interrupters sort of program work trying to mediate violence that happens so quickly yeah. between police and black men? Well, there needs to be some designated violence interrupters working uh, throughout the cities, uh, throughout cities in America here. And, um, and basically the police need to know who those violence interrupters are. And the violence interrupters should be uh, given some deputized uh, duties, whereas if they're on the scene and they see the police has crossed the line, and the violence interrupters need to be hired by the police department as a mediation uh, force that can enforce and intervene with the police when they cross the line, and then it would be more understood and accepted. You see, the Office of Internal Affairs in the police departments, those officers have already, have already been set up and established, but that's after the fact. Violence interrupters come before anybody is hurt. So, yes, uh, that's a good, good question there. So my response would be that the police should think about reaching out to me so we can train violence interrupters alongside the police 
So the police would know who the violence interrupters are, and that the violence interrupter role would be to step in the middle and mediate the conflict on behalf of the police in the community. That's how that would go. I, I've been reading and seeing on the news and on social media, there are some critics out there that are calling for more or less the end of policing, that there is no reform possible that is needed to, to address this sort of underlying structural racism that exists. It sounds like you're not arguing for that. No, I'm not arguing for the end of policing because I'll tell you the truth. Uh, if, if somebody's house was, uh, somebody was in front of somebody's house with a lot of guns about to kill the people in the house, the first people, uh, the first, uh, first thought is to call the police. A lot of people are going to call the police. I don't care how tough you are. And you have some good police out there. Let's just be honest. You see, in Chicago, it was revealed and exposed that there's a code of silence amongst police officers. The police have to break their code of silence the same way, you know, if they want people on the streets to break the code of silence, but they're not willing to break the blue code of silence, Okay. So basically, that's my answer there. And it's going to take a whole lot of rolling up your sleeves and going to work. But at the end of the day, my spirit leads me to believe that if the police departments would take a, a, a non-traditional approach to policing and change a lot of stop calling plays from an old textbook and create a new textbook here in policing moving forward. I would not call for the end of policing, but I would call for new strategies that have never, ever been thought about. Uh, you know, being uh, pretty much introduced here in the police world. So these these protests and these riots, they, uh, you know, we're we're recording on on Thursday morning Chicago time, and we're going to go to air on Monday morning next week. I I don't know what will be happening uh, over the next few days, but it seems as if the protests and the riots are not slowing down. They're not stopping. In your opinion. What do you think happens next here? What would be sort of a good resolution to the conflict, in your opinion? Well, a good resolution is this. It's, it's going to really be hard right now. Uh, George Floyd, I think his memorial services today, uh, people are going to have a lot of emotions. They're not going to slow down. The protests will continue. But the uh, protesters have to identify leaders within the movement that can actually sit down with legislators, lawmakers, and our president, Donald Trump, is not making it uh, that easy with all his rhetoric and the way he's talking. So that's not, that's a whole other issue. But right now, <laughs> someone has to emerge from uh, all the protests to sit down with lawmakers and begin to really, really break down uh, the barriers within policing so that we can uh, open up a new opportunity for, like, say, uh, you know, taking the policing work into a new direction, so to speak. Uh, we can calm things down. And uh, once the protests end, it seems just it's so crazy because we already, we've been there and we've done that already. So how could this happen again? That's the biggest question that the police department should deal with internally because they have to make sure it never, ever, ever happens again. But, uh, the way things are looking, we just don't know because you still got some people stuck in time. Uh, racism is handed down behavior the same way violence is handed down behavior, passed on from generation to generation. Uh, but I must admit, I see our white brothers and sisters and everybody, like I said, they're standing up. They're, they're not tolerating this stuff. Well, Teo Hardiman, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed again. Always a pleasure to talk and best of luck 
trying to navigate this very difficult situation today. Okay, I appreciate being here with you, and as always, I wish you the best over there. Tio Hardiman is president and founder of Violence Interrupters Incorporated and an adjunct professor of criminal justice. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.